Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby. Good evening and uh, joining me as always uh, is Ed Davis. How the devil are you sir? Yeah, good, fine. Uh, I'm sure like most uh, film fans I've spent uh, the last couple of days uh, quietly mourning the loss of Christopher Lee who of course died this week at the fine old age of 93. Yeah, he lived a full life. Um, he, uh, you know, was uh, born to uh, kind of aristocratic roots. Uh, he killed some dudes in like World War Two. He was like, a, you know, a secret agent practically, uh, kind of a trained opera singer, um, and made uh, over two hundred and fifty films, uh, of which about ten percent were very good. And recorded a heavy metal album about Charlemagne. In his, uh, in his, when he was in his uh, either late eighties or early nineties, which, you know, Alec Guinness didn't do that. No, well, not that we know about. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the point is, we make uh, Christopher Lee um, was an all-round dude, and and you know, a bit of a one-off, really, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, obviously, he ha- had plenty of iconic roles pretty much throughout his career. Obviously, he started off in kind of uh, stuff like being bit parts in. Olivier's Hamlet, where he played a spear, a spear carrier, but later on, you know, being iconic in uh, in the Hammer horror films, playing both Dracula and Frankenstein's monster, which is a uh, quite a double header, uh, playing Sherlock Holmes and uh, Moriarty uh, and Mycroft, oh, no, Sherlock and Mycroft, yeah, and also, you know, I think one of the things about his the longevity of his career is that every generation really probably has an idea of what he is. For a lot of people, he would have been Dracula in like older generations. But for our people our age, they might think of him as Saruman or Count Dooku, or uh, even like his part in Return to Witch Mountain. You know, he he kind of he was really someone who had that uh, great British actor thing of doing pretty much any job that would pay. Mm. <laughs> Which is um, probably the reason why he was in Police Academy Six, Mission to Moscow, and yeah. uh, a good deal of uh, pretty terrible films. But I think thanks to his uh, his his presence and the fact that he was a very tall, imposing man and he had one of the kind of greatest and kind of sonorous voices in uh, film history. He was always, he always made an impression. Mm. He had a, he had a kind of real late character, uh, career resurgence, mm-hmm. um, kind of after Lord of the Rings, which was, uh, you know, a huge hit and he was a great fit. I think he was the first person cast, uh, for that film. I think he, you know, he was a kind of a lifelong, uh, devotee of, uh, Tolkien's writing, um, and he'd kind of been waiting for the chance to be in an adaptation of it like, all his life, and he wanted to play Gandalf, but uh, he ended up playing Saruman in the end. But after that, um, I mean, he worked, you know, like you say, he was in um, some Star Wars prequels, uh, mm. which, you know, aren't great, but, you know, that's a great platform for you kind of later in life. Then Tim Burton kind of started casting him in everything. He worked with Scorsese, he was in Hugo. I mean, that's a great way to... If you spent a good deal of your career kind of treading water in uh, the kind of murky netherworld of, uh, of B movies and stuff, um, finishing your career that way is, you know must be a huge throw and and a uh, um, a great like kind of affirmation that you all along were a really good actor. 
Yeah, I think that one of the, the, the most heartwarming thing about reading the responses to his death was reading the, the people like Peter Jackson who were huge, grew up being huge fans of Christopher Lee and hearing them talk about just how elated they were to get to work with him. Like he mm. obviously meant so much to them and they, they were overjoyed at the the idea of being able to cast them in something and work with them. And, uh, and one of the things, there was a lovely uh, post from Ian McKellen who was talking about you know, sitting at the table read with Christopher Lee and being kind of in awe of him. And that just kind of made me think, oh, yeah, you know, I, I think of them as being of a similar generation, but Ian McKellen was like, tw- is 20 years younger than Christopher Lee. So he would have grown up watching him as well. And he would have been an inspiration to him. And, you know, being reminded that these people who do great work and are great artists uh, have, you know, these heroes that they want to work with is, is always something I find very touching. Um, we talk about uh, kind of the the best or kind of most iconic um, Christopher Lee performances. For me, um, his performance in in The Wicker Man is mm. a kind of a huge standout, and it's it's kind of unnerving and disturbing because uh, he's so non threatening in the whole film. He smiles, which is you know more unnerving than a kind of uh, you know being physically you know uh, ominous or, or threatening. Um, but I also um, We've talked about it before in the alternate one hundred. I his Mycroft Holmes is my all time favourite Mycroft. Yeah. Um you know, the way that he kind of uh gets across the uh, impression that he is um much better at everything <laughs> than Sherlock, but just doesn't quite have that thing that, that sets Sherlock apart from everyone else. Um is you know, he's great in that. I love that I love it. He's kind of got that kind of arrogance down pat. Yeah, I mean that is that is a great choice for him because again he has that regal bearing, so you can believe him as a guy who just sits in his club all the time and just mm. and has just this kind of quiet brilliance that you think this guy could solve the world's entire problems, but he just doesn't really have the the drive to do it. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, uh, for me, I think Saruman is the one that really kind of kind of uh, you know I saw what the Lord of the Rings films came out when I was fifteen, so that he was made a very big impression there, and I think one of the great things about his performance there is if you haven't read Lord of the Rings and you don't know that Saruman is you know, a massive bad guy, uh, he does actually play the kind of idea of him as being very gentle very well. He doesn't tip his hand too much. And then when you realise he has been corrupted, you're like, oh yeah, he's fucking Dracula. Of course he's evil. Mm. Uh, and he handles that switch so very well. Yeah, which is not something that is uh, handled in the Star Wars prequels very well. Mm. Uh, I mean, they call his character Count Dooku anyway. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty much exactly the same part. Someone who's supposed to be benevolent but has kind of, uh, you know, secretly been uh, turned to the dark side. Um, but in uh, in the Star Wars, it's played for three-year-olds. Um, so, yeah, apart from that, what else, what else caught your eye uh, uh, this week? Uh, news broke uh, in the last couple of days that the entire cast of The Good Dinosaur, the Pixar film we discussed a few weeks ago, which has had a lot of uh, production troubles, uh, has been replaced. Uh, all except Francis McDormand, who was in the original cast and is still in the new one. Uh, mm. And, you know, like we've talked about how Pixar have had troubled productions in the past which have turned out sometimes they've turned out really good sometimes they've turned out really bad uh but i can't think of an instance where they have replaced everyone who's kind of the main talent of the film including bill hader who is in inside out so someone who they had had for two films in a row is now just in one uh and, and for me when i read that story it was like oh this has basically become like pixar's version of the woody allen film september 
where he he mm. reshot it with two separate casts. And obviously here they're they're really just having people re-record lines. But the film apparently has been so radically restructured that none of almost none of the performances they had made any sense with the story they were now telling. Uh, and I found that to be uh, quite interesting. What's the thinking there then? I mean, you obviously get bits and pieces that are recast in films. Um, in animated films, you're under no. Uh, real time constraint, um, where it's you know kind of easier to replace someone is what I mean, because uh, you know it's in the can. They're just going to record the voices, but why replace everyone? The thinking I think is that maybe under the original version of the film, maybe it was perhaps a bit wackier, and they've gone for something a bit more somber now, or you know it could have been the other way. Maybe in the original version, the tone was close to something like The Land Before Time, and now they want to make it a bit more upbeat. So I think it was just a case of thinking it would make more sense to start from scratch with new people who aren't going to be kind of working with the baggage of having already given a performance. Like if you've given a performance in a certain style and then people say, okay, you have to forget everything you've done and you have to start from scratch, you know, it mm-hmm. might be a lot easier just to get new people in. It's going to be very interesting to see how that one pans out. Um, yeah, because we talked last week about films that have uh, horrendous production um, uh, histories but still managed to come out smelling of roses, much like Jaws last week. But, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if uh, if uh, Pixar can wriggle their way out of this one. Uh, my fingers are definitely crossed. Mm. Um, I saw this week that uh, they are touting uh, Michelle McLaren uh, to take over the Star Wars anthology film. Um, uh, recently, the reins of which have been passed over uh, from Josh Trank, who was uh, fired slash left. Now, my first thought was, great, that's that's actually a really interesting kind of appointment. It's, you know, that's a really good fit, I think. Um, you know, for those who don't know Michelle McLaren, uh, some great episodes of Breaking Bad, um, and really like to see um, her do her thing on the big screen. Uh, I think we all would. We very nearly got a chance to see her do Wonder Woman, and that fell apart. So I thought that's great that she's caught a break with the Star Wars anthology film. But then I was just thinking, and I was yeah, obviously thinking as well. You know, woman director, huge franchise, fantastic. But then my second thought is she's the second choice, uh, and that fucking sucks. Yeah, I think it's it's amazing that she has become pretty much primarily because of her work on Breaking Bad, I think is probably a sign of how much of a cultural force that show eventually became, that people who just happened to direct episodes of that uh, are now getting like huge franchise films. Um, I think, I can't, was it announced that Ryan Johnson was directing before or after Ozymandias? Oh, way, way his, after, yeah, way after. Yeah, because I think that, that the, the fact he directed that episode really contributed to him getting that job and uh, I think it would be interesting if a second Breaking Bad director (laughs) ended up getting it but I think that you know it's great that she appears to be on a lot of people's lists in Hollywood of yeah we should you know try and work with her because she's clearly someone who has an amazing grasp of action I think her her episode one minute from this the third season is probably uh the end of that episode is probably my favorite moment from the whole season the whole series it's like just this amazing scene of, uh, you know, the whole, the twins approaching Hank and him trying to survive the shootout. It's just immaculately tense. Mm. And, you know, get the idea of getting her to do something like that on the big screen is so cool. Uh, but also you kind of think this is, that's great that she's being considered for a great job, but, you know, she really should be at the top of a lot of people's lists instead of someone that you go to because the guy who did Fantastic Four is, is may not work out. Mm. 
just like you mentioned, Ozymandias. Did you see the thing that was going around Twitter this week? Um, with that, there was like a guy who started a media company, and he's called it Aussie Media O Z Y Media. And on the the kind of company bio, he's explaining why. And he read the poem Ozymandias, and he thought the message of it was "Dream Big," um, which, <laughs> <laughs> which is not is not the meaning of that poem. Uh, and it kind of <laughs> it went around, uh, it went viral, and it was very funny. I kind of it tickled me uh, when you just said Ozymandias there. Um, so yeah, Michelle McLaren, um, like I say, she should be top of the list and certainly head of the, the fucking Doody Dig Chronicle. Who, you know, the face of Chronicles is fine, it's, it's decent, I really enjoyed it. Um, but I think I'd much rather see her Star Wars than, than his. Mm, I just think at this point I'd rather see her make any film. I think she's in danger of it entering that kind of the same area that Edgar Wright seems to be entering, where he gets attached to a lot of films and people kind of throw his name out there, but. For one reason or another, those projects never come together. Mm, he's a commitment phobe. That's what's happening. <laughs> um, what else is, uh, has been uh, coming off the wires this week? Uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago at this point, we talked about how uh, Terry Gilliam has received it has a, a deal with uh, Amazon to develop projects with them. And it came through this week in an interview that he is going to finally make The Man Who Killed Don Quixote with them, sceptical question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, anyone who knows anything about his Don Quixote prote- uh, project or who's seen Lost in La Mancha will know that project has kind of been the bane of his existence for nearly 20 years at this point. And uh, you kind of get the sense that he needs to do it just to kind of uh, exercise the demon <laughs> from his life and to say that he finally managed to do it. And uh, I think the fact that he has a massive corporation behind it, even one as kind of suspect as uh, Amazon, is kind of reason to be very hopeful that it will finally happen. And he has two solid actors in it, in Jack O'Connell, who you know was great in Startup last year, and uh, John Hurt, who's just an all-round dude and is just mm-hmm. kind of a wonderful actor and a perfect choice to play Don Quixote. You know, there's a lot of things there that make you think, maybe it can happen this time. But at the same time, I'm thinking, and then they're all going to catch fire. Because <laughs> yeah. it seems to be that the closer he gets to it, the more catastrophic things have to be to stop him. I'll say this much, right? And I'll, I'll kind of pose it as a question to you. If you were an actor of uh, kind of, of advancing years... And Terry Gilliam offered you the part in Don Quixote. You wouldn't t- touch that with a fucking barge pole. You'd be like, "I'm going to die on this set. This will be the film that kills me." Mm, yeah, I think it probably if anyone hears that they want that John Landis wants to work with them, but it will involve helicopters. Probably. That's dark. That probably. is seriously fucking dark, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I think... oh, um, okay. Uh, any last call for news before we crack on to the main subject? Uh, I was delighted to hear that Chris Hemsworth is going to be playing the receptionist in Ghostbusters. Uh, um, I'm, I'm not, because it's ruining my childhood. Because, <laughs> uh, that that should, a receptionist should always be a woman. Uh, I just think it's a it's a wonderful kind of continuation of Paul Feig's apparent uh, devotion to making the film uh, as much of a genuine kind of female-led Ghostbusters as possible, going to the point of having uh, casting someone who is, you know, obviously eye candy as the receptionist, but also someone who has legitimate uh, comedic chops, as we've seen as from his very funny turns in the Avengers films, but also, you know, his, his work on Saturday Night Live, where he's, uh, you know, he was very game and up for anything. So uh, that's a, a bit of casting for that film that I'm very much in favour of. Mm, his um, fake American Express advert um, uh, is very funny. 
if anyone wants to go in there, uh, type that into the YouTube. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, Saturday Night Live, American Express advert. Very, very funny. Um, but yeah, so I'll leave you with that one before we press on to the main subject. We're going to be talking about uh, a film that is uh, currently tearing up the box office. Um, and, you know, a huge film of the year. Uh, we're talking about Jurassic World. Um, a kind of long-awaited, long-anticipated uh, reopening of uh, of the kind of Jurassic Park franchise. And when I say it's been ripping apart the box office, it really has. I think it's the biggest opening ever, is it? Is it $511 million? Yeah, it's the, the biggest opening week, global opening weekend ever, uh, beating the last Harry Potter film by almost $30 million. That's uh, absurd. Yeah, it's unbelievably huge. And uh, at the time of recording, it has the second highest opening weekend in America with uh, $204.6 million, just behind The Avengers, which earned $207.4 million. But by the time people hear this, that order might have been uh, reversed because there's uh, intimations that Universal are actually uh, underselling how much the film could have made because they don't want to announce, they don't want to run the risk of announcing they've got the biggest weekend ever and then having to kind of backtrack it when all the actual numbers come in. But yeah. apparently people are saying that there's a very real chance that it could be the have the highest opening weekend of all time, which is nuts. Yeah. So Colin Trevorrow has gone from safety not guaranteed to the biggest opening, global opening of all time. Yeah, that's one of the things I, I always find quite amusing on Box Office Mojo is if you imagine people in years to come looking at the careers of certain directors and thinking, Wait, how, how did that happen? Like, How did Gareth Edwards go from directing a film that earned like $100,000 to one that opened to 90 million or mm. how did Joss Whedon go from directing a film that earned like 40 million dollars worldwide to one that earned 1.5 billion like obviously we exist in the cultural context in which we understand how those decisions get made but like if you imagine in 20 years time people will look at that and think it's a bit of a jump yeah. <laughs> that's a, a bit of a, a leap in uh, in success um we both saw the film this weekend um mm-hmm. Um, but I need to kind of preface what we both thought about it um, with kind of a little bit of kind of personal background for me in that um, I grew up a massive, massive, massive dinosaur fan. And I still am. I, I kind of uh, uh, love dinosaurs. I've got lots of dinosaur books. Um, was enraptured by going to the Natural History Museum as a child and, and uh, looking at things, uh, kind of being uh, transported back to otherworldly places. Um, by giant monsters, um, absolutely fascinated by dinosaurs. Um, and I was at the right age in 1993 uh, to have my kind of like world, you know, uh, my mind blown by Jurassic Park. I was 12 uh, when it came out. But for all that, I don't actually really love the Jurassic Park films as much as other people my age do, and I don't really get why. Uh, I I think I'm in a similar position in that when the first Jurassic Park came out, I was really, really obsessed with dinosaurs. Not to the extent that I actually knew much about them. I just thought they were incredibly cool. And so like, I got my parents to subscribe to that magazine where you got bits and pieces of a plastic T-Rex that you got to build over the course of like 100 issues, mm. uh, which uh, I think was probably a massive waste of money yeah, because sure. I never actually read any of the, any of the magazines. I just wanted the... Uh, dinosaur and they probably could have saved a hundred pounds by buying me a dinosaur toy but like I, I was obsessed with anything dinosaur related and I really loved 
the first film because it was kind of, I think for me it was the same that like Star Wars was for people of an older generation or Jaws, a film that really kind of instilled a love of blockbusters and spectacle and, you know, kind of a real appreciation for special effects and everything. Uh, and uh, I think it's a film that, that you know, has a, a great deal of nostalgic love for me, even though when I watch it now, I realise that this, the narrative it is, isn't that strong like compared to some of Spielberg's other ones, it has a lot of wonder and awe to it, but it, you know, the story itself just kind of feels like it's spinning its wheels until the dinosaurs can go wild and attack people. Mm. I think one of the, re- one of the reasons that I can, the only real way I can put my finger uh, on why I don't love the film is because I absolutely love the book mm. um, and the book. And then, you know, I hate those assholes who say, Oh, the film's all right, but it's not as good as the book. But like the film, the book of Jurassic Park is completely different to the the film in the sense that it is a book for adults, and mm-hmm. it is like there's a lot of quite complex uh, chaos theory in it. Um, there's uh, huge uh, kind of like uh, rambling bits where uh, Ian Malcolm, who let, let's uh, remember, dies in the book, um, kind of is is in and out of consciousness, and he's kind of hopped up on morphine, and he's kind of explaining these really weird things. Uh, that are kind of going on in his head and shooting through and trying to explain the whole chaos system stuff. Um, and it's also really brutal. <laughs> and there's mm. some horrible, horrible violence and gore in it, which was much more my scene when I was uh, 12. That's pretty disturbing. Uh, and then the, the the film, the film is just like a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a family favourite, isn't it, really? Even though there is a bit where a man is eating off a toilet. Yeah, I think the film has a, a kind of a lighter touch than it in terms of the violence. And I think probably a lot, Less people die. In yeah, the film. only only a handful. Yeah, there's. I think there's only like f- maybe five deaths. There's like the trainer. There's Nedry. There's the lawyer. There's Samuel L. Jackson and uh, Muldoon, and that's yeah. pretty much it. Uh, otherwise, and and most of them die very quickly or off screen. So it's not really that bloody. Uh, there was a. Did you see the article on the Dissolve about imagining a world in which James Cameron directed uh, Jurassic Park this week? No, was he? Was he ever actually attached to it? Uh, no, he was, but it's written by a guy called Mike D'Angelo, who at the time he was talking about how he worked in a video shop and how, in the wake of T two, he and his friends always talked about how it was obvious. It seemed obvious to them that James Cameron should direct this book because it's fit with his uh, sensibilities so well. And then mm. it's kind of a, a thought experiment of imagining what a different film it would have been if James Cameron had directed it and mainly talking about the idea probably would have been R-rated and probably would have been a lot kind of darker than what Spielberg did. But Spielberg, I think, pretty much bought the rights to the book straight away and was like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna do this. So what did we think of Jurassic Park, Jurassic World or Jurassic Park 4? What did we think of it, Ed? Uh, I think you and I have both said essentially the same thing, which is the it's the best of the Jurassic Park sequels. But that is not necessarily that strong of an endorsement because uh, yeah, that's damning with faint praise. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoy Jurassic Park three as kind of a very goofy B movie, and uh, I rewatched uh, the Lost World today, and it was it was better than I remembered it being up to a point. Um, but yeah, those films are not particularly good, so it was it didn't have a huge bar to clear, really. Mm. Yeah, I had a lot of problems with Jurassic World, as and- did I. Yeah, I haven't really had a lot of chance to to kind of process them because I did watch it four hours ago mm-hmm. uh, as we record this. Um, but I mean, the 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 kind of crux of it is um, 
it's a very kind of like uh, top heavy film mm-hmm. or bottom heavy film in the sense that the the last kind of third or half is a lot stronger than the first, and it's mainly because the first like hour is really fucking stupid in the sense that it is a lot of stupid characters doing really stupid things and making really stupid decisions for really stupid reasons. Uh, and like it is, it is summed up perfectly by, uh, oh, yeah, we should probably put a spoiler warning out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to spoil the entire film practically. Yep. Um, the scene in which, uh, the Indominus Rex, this um, you know genetically modified dinosaur, um, escapes from its paddock. Like it's daytime, they've seen it in there, and then all of a sudden they can't see it, and they check that they they check for its kind of thermal signature, and they don't get anything. So what they do is Bryce Dallas Howard drives off uh, and sends. Three unarmed people, including a sec- <laughs> two security guards and Chris Pratt, into the paddock, even though no one has seen or heard a 50-foot dinosaur escaping <laughs> in broad daylight. And it's only when she drives a suitable distance away that she rings one of the people in control and says, where's its tag? Where's its like geotag? And they're like, well, it's in the, it's in the fucking paddock. And then she's like, oh, shit, it's actually in there. And then obviously everyone dies and it escapes. That is absolutely fucking ridiculous. Like I don't, you know, obviously people are going to say to me, and I'm going to have to like live with this. They're going to say, oh, it's a film about dinosaurs. Why are you taking it so seriously? But like when uh, like stupid plot holes and uh, gaps in logic trip you up, um, given as well that this film exists in the same universe that Jurassic Park existed. And this isn't a remake they know what happened the first time round. Why would they do the dumbest shit just to get the plot moving? Yeah, one of the things that made me really laugh was that uh, when they they say that uh, a dinosaur escaping is a code nineteen, <laughs> and I was like, what are the eighteen codes before then? <laughs> because yeah, the, vend- the vending machine's not working. Yeah, because I think if you want to make sure that everyone knows the, the what the code is and they don't have to consult the manual for what a code nineteen means, you say a code one. A code yeah. one is that a fucking dinosaur's escaped and it's rampaging around the island. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that you're completely right. And I was actually thinking, because it, initially it seems like, oh, the, the Indominus Rex has cl- managed to claw its way out and climb out, which I think would be kind of dumb because it's a fucking huge dinosaur and the idea of it climbing over these walls that are being like maintained and being worked on... Constantly. ...would be dumb. But the yeah. actual thing that then happens is like far, far stupider. Um, I think my my main problem. I think this is the, or a lot of the problems in the film probably stem from the fact that it's the result of an untold number of drafts uh, written over many many years. Um, mm-hmm. Famously, we had the John Sayles draft where the dinosaurs were going to be kind of half human hybrids that fired guns, which mm-hmm. would have been uh, is the sort of film that I think would have been unbelievably terrible, but would have been quite an interesting watch. Yeah. Uh, and you can kind of see some of that in the whole plot line about uh, Vincent D'Onofrio wanting to militarize Chris Pratt's uh, pet raptors. But uh, and a lot of the time that is kind of more in kind of weird character things like, for example, uh, the fact that repeatedly they show the uh, the elder brother of the two brothers who go to the island, Zach, staring at girls 
even mm-hmm. though he's got a girlfriend back home. And I kind of think, oh, this has happened a few times. It's probably setting up something that's going to pay off later. And then nope. it never does. Yeah. And it's this weird thing where you think either the payoff for this has been cut from the film entirely, or it was written in one draft and then no one actually bothered to kind of put a resolution to this. And a lot of the, the really dumb characters have does seem to come from the fact that they were probably really rushing to get the film made after yeah. kind of finally getting a a star in Chris Evans, uh, Chris Evans, in Chris Pratt, other Marvel guy, uh, in Chris Pratt, and you know, finally getting all the pieces together for a film to actually happen. That you know, they probably weren't able to really go over the script with uh, as fine a tooth to comb as they would like. Mm. I've kind of made some character notes because I mean, the characters are are, are problematic for me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Chris Pratt is playing. Uh, Thomas Jane's character from Deep Blue Sea, <laughs> literally note for note, which is, you know, it's not like a Hamlet style archetype, is it? It's no. Tom Jane from Deep Blue Sea. Um, Bryce Dallas Howard uh, just makes poor decisions, mm-hmm. um, with the exception of one at the end. Um, uh, there's been a lot of kind of talk about the kind of, like the kind of perceived sexism in this, and and kind of like. Uh, She's like there's a bit where apparently her sister shames her for not wanting to have a kid, but I so I didn't get that at all. If you, if you've got a problem with that, you're probably just an idiot. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio's character was just a two dimensional asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that B D Wong, um, who somehow has got a job uh, in Jurassic World, given he was one of the principal architects of Jurassic Park, um, is in his in his older years he's starting to resemble kind of like Asian Val Kilmer. I don't know if anyone else. <laughs> feels this but like if you look at Val Kilmer in uh, in uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang they've got like the same mannerisms and everything Asian Val Kilmer um, that, as a character note goes that's quite weird uh, the kids uh, like you say about having um, uh, bits cut out and stuff there's just a really weird scene where they talk about their parents getting divorced mm. um, and it's it's a touching scene and the kids actually play it really nicely Yeah, but it has literally no impact on anything like I don't understand why that's in there like it doesn't pay off it's never mentioned again it's just it's just weird yeah there are lots of moments in the film that work on a scene by scene basis mm. but they all seem very very disconnected from each other i mean the divorce thing it kind of plays into the opening when uh, their parents played by Judy Greer and someone who isn't Judy Greer um mm. the dude from I, the office yeah um they kind of see them off and there's a wonderful moment that's probably the best kind of individual performance in the film where uh, Judy Greer hugs the younger boy, Grey. She kind of hugs him and then while they can't see her face, like she has this kind of look of despair on her face, which just kind of passes very briefly and then she puts on a big smile. And it's a wonderful... They, it's, she suggests essentially, yeah, this is like the last day they're going to be together as a family because they're probably getting divorced because this is a film based on a film directed by Spielberg and you know someone's got to get divorced at some point mm. uh, and um, like you can see that and you think okay it ties into the, their discussion there and then maybe that's why this son the elder the elder brother decides that they should go off-roading to kind of give his brother some fun but it's all it's all very kind of schematic and they're all these kind of separate points where you think we have to take a lot of leaps that uh, are you can sort of make, but the characters aren't written well enough that you can think, okay, this very logically kind of goes from this thing to the next thing. It's more kind of a case where you have to really kind of think it through and think eh, that sort of fits together, but not quite. Mm. Yeah, and it's it it that does kind of 
unbalance the film slightly because I'm never quite sure who the main character is mm. or who we're supposed to be following or caring about. The only person I did really care about who I really liked is uh, the character that Jake Johnson plays, who yeah. has well, the best moment in the film for me where uh, he kind of proclaims himself to be a hero and does a, something really selfless um, to try and kind of uh, get romantically entangled with his co-worker only to be told point blank that she has a boyfriend uh, yeah, and not in, a, not in a kind of we should just be friends way, but in a really funny kind of like, dude, I've got a boyfriend. Uh, yeah. It's actually very funny. Yeah, him, he has great chemistry with uh, podcast all-star Lauren Lapkus, who plays the... Uh... Who plays the uh, the uh, the other woman in that the, the woman in that scene? Uh, and their kind of in, their interplay with each other is very very funny throughout. Uh, mm-hmm. He's probably I think he is probably the most likable character because he has just some very very funny lines, such as when he's talking about the ridiculousness of corporate sponsored dinosaurs, and he says, "What are we going to have the Dorita Don?" Which is a, <laughs> a great a great name for a uh, a corporate dinosaur. A lot of the things that I found odd in the script is that they will kind of lampshade things in the story where they kind of pay lip service you know they they talk about corporate sponsorship and then there's lots of product placement throughout which allegedly was something that colin trevorrow pushed for as a satire of product placement in movies not buying that no i'm not buying that because it's not like in josie and the pussycats where they just push it to ridiculous extremes of having like branding on like walls in bathrooms that would have no reason to have branding on it and things like that. It is just like you're watching it, it's like, oh yeah, there's a Pandora. <laughs> there's a, um, there's uh, Chris Pratt is taking a very long chug of this Coca-Cola. Mm. You know, it, it just feels more like they're paying lip service to the idea of being like anti-corporate and saying, you know, focus groups and corporate sponsorships are a terrible thing for creativity and th- making it kind of this metaphor for blockbuster filmmaking or whatever. But at the same time, they're going through with it. And and the other kind of big example of that is that they point out how ridiculous it is that uh, Bryce Dallas Howard would be running around wearing uh, these like huge uh, high heels, which is kind of a, a standard trope of a lot of blockbusters is that you essentially just make the, uh, make the female characters run around in clothes that are designed to make them more sexually alluring rather than being in any way practical. You see it in like uh, superhero films, you see it in action films all the time. And they kind of point it out. You think, oh, this is going to pay off. Like, she's going to swap these for some sensible shoes at some point. But it never does. She just runs around in high heels for the entire film. And Mm. unless they're going for kind of the action movie equivalent to that thing about how Ginger Rogers had to do everything that Fred Astaire did, but backwards in high heels, and Bryce Dallas Howard is having to do the exact same things that Chris Pratt is doing, but wearing high heels, it just feels like they're pointing this out to say, yeah, we're aware of this. We're not going to do anything about it, but we are aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just have to kind of lump it. Um, it in true style of kind of aping bits of the original and product placement. Oh, it always bothered me in in the first film that uh, there's a quiet moment between uh, uh, Richard Attenborough and, and Laura Dern where they're kind of talking about he's talking about the flea circus, isn't he? About how that was the first thing he ever uh, made as an attraction. Um, but before that scene, there's a really shameless slow pan across all the Jurassic Park merchandise, um, <laughs> which is, yes, it is kind of like diegetic, I guess, because that's where the scene is set. But also, like, all that stuff is available to buy in real life. Mm. Um, and there's the same bit in this. There is a key scene <laughs> that is played entirely in a Jurassic World merchandise shack, um, which is uh, pretty shameless. Yeah, and, and large parts of it, you're watching them kind of driving and escaping from the 
Raptors in these fine Mercedes vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of like it's it's almost like the uh, Simpsons Mattel. Uh, what is it like Mattel Hasbro Chocobot block hour? Where it's like <laughs> Chocobots put down those fine Mattel products. <laughs> you know, it's just like it just feels so kind of. Uh, you know, if it's if it's intended as satire, it's very bad satire, and if it's not, it's just like really, it just kind of makes you feel a little, I don't know, a little dirty afterwards. Mm. I'm surprised they didn't shoot some of it with Carl Weathers in a Burger King. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a wonderful restaurant. It sure is. Um, we are going to keep coming back to the script uh, being the principal problem uh, of the film, um, and kind of makes the. Um, motivations of the characters, the machinations of the plot, harder to uh, kind of fathom, really. Um, like, we find out that uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's character is, uh, yeah, he wants to kind of uh, appropriate the dinosaurs to, for military service, which is insane, <laughs> um, because why not just use lions? <laughs> I mean, it's like, raptors are dangerous, but like, if you think about the work it takes to get a raptor and the money it's going to cost, use a lion. Like, lions yeah. will do the job. They're probably um, a lot cheaper than to genetically engineer a raptor that'd be perfect for military service. Yeah, ten a penny, mate. Ten a, pen, ten a penny. Um, but, like, his entire, like, gambit is based on he's going to spend time kind of shadowing around at an organisation, watch someone try and train raptors, but not to a standard to which they can actually perform any kind of proper military thing because they will kill anyone else apart from Chris Pratt. Mm-hmm. But he's just going to hang around this organisation watching this slowly unfold whilst in the background, to his knowledge, they make a giant dinosaur that will escape but has nothing to do to do with him and then eventually there's going to be a plan to use those dinosaurs to kill that dinosaur so they will be approved for military deployment? Is that mm-hmm. his plan? That's his plan, really? Yeah, his his whole plan seems to be about making some sort of incredible uh, PR coup that would require so many things to go wrong that it would only make sense if he was behind it all. Like, if mm. if they had revealed that he had, like, turned off the thermal sensors or something and it wasn't that, oh, by the way, yeah, this thing can camouflage itself and can hide its body or whatever. You know, if, if it had turned out that Vincent D'Onofrio had planned this whole thing as a way of getting this kind of opportunity to show that the Raptors could do this and then it completely fucking backfired, yeah. that, you would think, that makes sense. Like, within this whole idea of a you know, a critique of militarization of science and something, if the military was behind this all and it was some sort of false flag operation, would have, you know, that that would kind of work. But the fact is he just he's just a guy who happens to be there and comes up with the least likely to succeed plan you could possibly come up with in that situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also the the kind of same thinking behind uh, what at first was quite a cool thing where... Um, the kids go off row off uh, the path in their gyrosphere and they kind of escape the the Indominus Rex and they find the old visitor centre mm. from from Jurassic Park, the original Jurassic Park. You're like, oh, this is like a really cool moment. And then you stop and process it and you think, why is this happening? Like, why wouldn't that have been demolished? Mm. Oh, I see. It's because they need to find a gas jeep they can uh, they can just fix to escape the situation. There's literally no other reason for it other than that. Yeah, I mean, things like that, you think at least they're taking the time to integrate the fan service into the plot in a way that, may, that you know, kind of is functional. Mm. And it's not just that they see it and think, oh, cool, well, let's move on. Let's go do something else. 
but you know it's like when you you kind of think about it you think yeah this this really does just exist as a way to give them a jeep and in a way that doesn't feel 100% natural I mean I thought that scene you know it was quite it was oddly touching to see this place overgrown and to be reminded of seeing the original film and everything but yeah when you actually see the way that it's implemented it it just feels just again like the whole film it just feels all very schematic like there are all these different ideas that are being uh thrown together and, and don't really kind of mesh into anything cohesive mm. there's a lot of um uh elements or callbacks to um the first film um that are quite subtle mm. um but they're put in there purely to to kind of like not trick you, I guess, but just kind of jolt you into thinking of, of the original film to try and perhaps prop up the deficiencies in this one, um, such as the final showdown, uh, dinosaurs off against each other, uh, the kind of slight deus ex machina uh, kind of arrival of, a, of another dinosaur to kind of help out the humans. You've got the, the kind of the character who isn't interested in kids slowly becoming more maternal mm-hmm. in the same way that Sam Neill's character did. Uh, you got these little visual cues like the the wing mirror um, gag uh, being used with the raptors this time in the ambulance as it was in the uh, uh, the very funny objects in the rearview mirror uh, mm-hmm. may appear closer than they seem. Uh, gag from the first film. There's lots of those little ones in there, and and um, I don't know whether that's uh, like I say a deliberate attempt to try and uh, kind of evoke a feeling, or it's just they're running out of ideas. There's a lot of kind of things throughout it which feel like nods to Spielberg. Like there's the bit where uh, Omar Sy is uh, being attacked by the raptors and he hides in that log when uh, the raptors are kind of clawing at the thing. Uh, the There's, you know, kind of the shots of light through dust, which is very much a Spielberg motif. And uh, the moment in the film that was kind of the most sour for me, which is the death of the nanny, uh, is kind of like it's kind of like a jaws thing because it's a character a woman being kind of thrown around by a creature and it ends up in under the water and everything uh but if that's what it is it comes off as kind of quite sour and kind of mean spirited in a way that a lot of the rest of the film kind of isn't it's pretty brutal isn't it mm, uh, yeah, her, kind of her death yeah i mean and i think one of the things i think really it really bothers me about it is that they if they did it to like a random character or if it had happened to one of the military guys you'd think that's like fine but because we've been introduced to her and all we know about her is that she's a nanny and that she was on the phone at one point you kind of think why is she being run through so much why what is she being punished for and it just kind of feels like they're making some sort of assumption about her like she's like a really horrible character and you should be uh and you should feel like, oh, you know, this is really gnarly, when it kind of isn't. It's just really kind of cruel. And it's not like, uh, you know, uh, Richard Schiff's death in The Lost World, where he is torn apart by two T-Rexes, but he's doing something incredibly heroic and trying to save everyone. It's like she's just walking along, and then she gets picked up by a, a pterodon or whatever, and then eaten by a massive fish. It seems that um, that character is inserted into the uh, the film purely for that reason, because she doesn't mm-hmm. serve any narrative purpose. All she does is lose the kids and follow them and is just talking on her iPhone the whole time. Yeah, and she doesn't even lose them. Like, they run off. It's not yeah. like if she had genuinely completely lost them because she was talking to her fiancé about the bachelor party or something and it was the case that she was incredibly careless. It was it, They actually go out of their way to run away from her. It's like it's not really her fault yeah. that they're dicks. 
Yeah, absolutely. And she gets kind of eaten uh, quite badly uh, by the Mosasaurus, who has uh, been kind of threatened for a long time. I think Spielberg was interested in doing a uh, a sequel with uh, aquatic uh, prehistoric animals. Um, and this is a kind of nod to that, but basically it performs the function of, again, being the deus ex machina uh, kind of thing that just kind of inconceivably saves the day or ruins things, depending on your point of view. Uh, I do have a problem with, like, because uh, it gets the, the Indominus Rex at the end, um, which is kind of stupid because, like, the T-Rex is, 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 is kind of set loose to tackle the, the uh, D-Rex, and uh, they fight, and then the T-Rex throws the D-Rex towards the water, mm-hmm. and then the Mosasaurus jumps out and gets it. Another nod, maybe, to Deep Blue Sea, which, as we all know, is a, a wonderful <laughs> piece of, uh, of filmmaking. But, like, I was like, okay, that's fine. But then I'm like, hang on. This is just the high street of, like, the, the park. Can you walk that close to the water? And that dinosaur, sorry, not a dinosaur. Mosasaurus is not a dinosaur. Uh, the Mosasaurus can just jump out and grab humans mm. who are just walking by. Um, it seems like a small point, but that's, again, um, kind of uh, uh, plot holes for logic and uh, convenience. And it does kind of mar what up until that point has been actually a pretty cool fight between the Indominus Rex and the T-Rex and the last surviving uh, raptor, Yeah, which is actually... You know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty well executed fight, and it's it's really fun. And also, you have the T Rex kind of wandering away at the end as kind of the Danny Glover of the film, who just seems to think, you know, I'm too old for this shit. Yeah, because it is supposed to be the original T Rex from mm. the original park. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that we should probably talk about what we liked about the film. I mean, yeah, um, my favorite moment of the entire film uh, was the reveal of the T Rex. Um, mm. It was very. It was an amazing kind of shot of um, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Kind of opens the um, the gate, and she's got the red flare, which is a great little throwback to uh, uh, the flares and how they're used in in Jurassic Park, um, which is kind of foreshadowed when they're feeding it the goat earlier on. Um, yeah, and um, you kind of see this. It's very dark, and you just see the red glint of the uh, the flare in the eyes, and then. You know, the old girl comes out and uh, and gets down to business. Yeah, that is a, that is a great moment. I think it's uh, one of. I think in general, the action in the film is pretty good, and I also like how it is even more like Westworld than the original was. Yeah, because the original Jurassic Park is in many ways just a riff on Westworld, which was uh, you know a film written and directed by uh, uh, Michael Crichton long before he did uh, Jurassic Park, but. Like this time, they go even further where it's not where it's an active theme park where the attractions kind of the the chaos kind of spreads throughout the attraction very well. So even though the escape of the Indominus Rex is dumb, the like the the way that people's attempts to contain him, uh, her, uh, get even worse. Mm. Like if things things spiral madly out of control from that point onwards, and I do like the kind of cascading terror and chaos that comes about from you know one dinosaur escaping leads to just like absolute havoc throughout the park mm. yeah yeah absolutely um i think that the generally the the last third um gets away with it because it's kind of so 
propulsive and mm. um like the the kind of it's still stupid um but you're having it's moving so quickly and it's so well done and well put together that you kind of you do forget about the those bits that when the action's moving slightly slower you can kind of ponder on and think about and going on yeah it reminds me in a lot of ways of godzilla from last year where there's a lot of ponderous parts and there's lots of underwritten characters but then you get to Godzilla fighting the two uh, mutos in San Francisco, and it's just this kind of amazingly huge uh, spectacle of these these monsters kind of killing each other. And in this one, it's the same sort of thing where at a certain point you're just kind of like, oh, you, you know, these monsters, these these giant creatures are fighting each other, and these humans are just trying to stay alive throughout it all, and it, it works pretty well. I also, uh, even though the character is very kind of underwritten, I think Vincent D'Onofrio does the best he can with that character. Mm-hmm. And I do like the fact that uh, his big, he dies because he's about to give a big speech and then the raptor happens to come in and interrupts him as he's doing it, which uh, I thought was, was quite a funny uh, little way of deflating what could have been, you know, a very pompous moment. Mm. And also, even though um, Chris Pratt has, has kind of forged a bond with these velociraptors, at the point in which the velociraptor is about to kill Vincent D'Onofrio, um, Chris Pratt is standing behind it at point blank range with a loaded rifle, but doesn't kill it on the basis that it will come back and help him later. Yeah, and I do think that the 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 turn of the the raptors when they meet the Indominus Rex and revealing that the Indominus Rex has been made with raptor DNA, which is something that I kind of called from very early on, mm-hmm. just because I kind of figured if they're not going to tell people what's in it, it's probably because it's like a raptor or something. Uh, I think the idea that th- that is what makes them just decide to go after the humans uh, was kind of a nice way of saying, it was a kind of a nice way of acknowledging that the uh, kind of utopian ideal of them being able to train the ra- raptors comes up against their programming at a certain point. Mm. In much the same way that, you know, that they seem to be hinting at uh, the uh, at the idea of like lion tamers. It's like you can... You can get them to do tricks and you can control them to a certain extent, but at the end of the day, it's a wild animal and it will rip your throat out if it uh, gets the chance. Mm, absolutely. Um, which makes lions not ideal military operatives. <laughs> I think we've proved one thing here. There was a, there was a bit of that. That was a cool moment when um, uh, when uh, the raptors and the, the, the kind of D-Rex face off and they, you, that's, you, you find out that it's part raptor. But that moment should only have been witnessed by Chris Pratt and Omar Sy because the that entire crack military unit, which were flown in especially for the purpose of killing the D-Rex, stand there and watch it for like five minutes and when they've got a clear shot with a fucking bazooka and all their kind mm-hmm. of laser-guided rifles, but they stand there and watch it just so Chris Pratt and Omar Sy can have that moment, which is, you know, and then, and then Vincent D'Onofrio says, why are they waiting so long? I'm just like, yes, why are they waiting so long? It's because we need a reason for it to escape. Yeah, it would have made a lot more sense if they, those guys had been super far ahead. Yeah. And the, and the military guys, because they are military guys carting around a lot of military hardware, uh, don't arrive until it's too late. Mm. And they they arrive and they don't understand the situation and then things go completely to hell. I did also like the fact that the film was kind of a, uh, a crossbreed between Jurassic Park and Aliens. There was a lot uh, of Aliens a, references, yeah. Yeah, particularly the, the, the monitoring of the heart monitors at the point that the, the D-Rex and the Raptors start killing everyone, mm. which, which is a, you know, a very effective way of saying, yeah, this situation has gotten way out of hand. Mm. I liked the gyro ball scene 
mm. when they were kind of being knocked around by the um, ankylosauruses and and then the D-Rex kind of gets it in its mouth. Uh, that was a that was a kind of a cool moment. Um, and yeah, like like I say, after D'Onofrio shows his hand, as it were, the film does kind of kick into gear. Um, but I think ultimately the problem is is that like I, I wouldn't have had this problem if this film would have been a straight remake because mm. there's no way on earth that anyone's going to open a dinosaur park after what happened in Jurassic Park. And that's in Jurassic Park 2 is not about another park being opened. Jurassic Park 3 is not about another park being opened. They've gone back to the well and, and made the exact same film again with the exact same consequences. And it just felt like going through the motions, like you said at the, at the top of the show, about the uh, the narrative drive of the original Jurassic Park basically being about what beats can we hit before the dinosaurs are released. It's that, but we've already seen it once and we've seen it done really well. Yeah, and, and the fact that we have already seen all the dinosaurs, so there's not that sense of wow factor. A lot of what carries the original Jurassic Park is that at the time people had never seen CGI on that scale before. They'd never seen these kind of wonderful models and animatronics that they were using. And so there's a huge, there's a great sense of the shock of the new to it. Mm. And the film kind of acknowledges that point by saying, you know, we have to make, we have to crossbreed dinosaurs. It's kind of commenting on the, the fact that with these blockbusters, you have to, you have to give people something new each time. And the film tries to do that but it doesn't really work. And I think you're, you're right. If it was a straight remake, it'd be fine. I think the, the fact that this takes place, even if they have, as they've said, they've kind of ignored the continuity of the second and third films, because obviously why would anyone want to open a dinosaur theme park when you've seen a T-Rex wreck San Diego? <laughs> yeah. It's like no one would kind of think it was a good idea, even considering the, the events of the first film. You just think, I know, a lot of money was invested in this and there's a lot of corporate greed and the the greed of corporations is something that is kind of a recurring motif of all the Jurassic Park films. There is a limit mm. <laughs> to how far you can take that. Yeah, yeah. And there's that bit at the start where um, the, the dinosaur has escaped, this huge killer dinosaur that they've uh, genetically modified, and he says, evacuate the park. And she says, uh, but whatever we'll reopen. And I'm just like, are, are you fucking kidding? Like, mm. you'll never reopen... Anyway, because this dinosaur is going to eat all the people, so yeah, you know. I think I think one of the things I thought was interesting about the film is that in terms of uh, its depiction of Bryce Dallas uh, Bryce Dallas Howard is that it does seem to be kind of pointing in the direction of of being a film about you know the idea that if you're a woman in a very corporate situation, a male dominated corporate thing, you have to work very hard and you probably have to do things that you uh, are may not agree with morally in order to maintain your position in a way that, you know, like a man wouldn't have to do. Mm. And like her, her kind of, she's clearly very conflicted about the idea of keeping the park open, but she's also thinking, you know, I will never get another job if this park closes and, you know, I won't get another chance at any kind of a decent uh, job. And so I can kind of see that kind of making sense, but yeah, at the same time you're thinking there's no way this situation works out for you. Mm. She's not going to get a job after this clusterfuck that she's presided no. over. Um, I don't think another any of them that, are going to work again. Another character thing that just didn't make a lot of sense to me was Irfan uh, Khan's character, mm. who initially is like kind of seems to be carrying the torch of John Hammond's kind of daft idealism of being like, you know, I just want to entertain people and things like that. And then like immediately in the next scene, he's like a cold, hard money man. And he's just kind of like, this will make great profits for us. Mm. It's like, are these two characters that you have com kind of compressed into each other? 
it doesn't really make any sense for him to veer so wildly from scene to scene. And his his death in the fiery helicopter thing is is a really kind of uh, feels like a real lost opportunity because up until that point he's been kind of quite interesting and charismatic, and then you just you know drop him on the ground and dies in a fiery explosion. Yeah, because the other helicopter pilot was somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there was that. I mean, ultimately, my, the conclusion the conclusion I can draw from Jurassic World is it's not dreadful. Uh, like I say, it's the it's the second best Jurassic Park film, um, but not by you know a considerable distance. Um, I do not understand the four and five star love that I'm seeing for it all over the place. Yeah, I think I gave it a three and a half, which I think on Letterbox, which would be I think quite charitable. I think a large part of it is that it does provide dinosaur spectacle, mm-hmm. and I think if that's all people want, then it gives them that. Um, I think the, the, the main takeaway for me is that if they do make another one, and I think they have said they want to make another two, and you know the amount of money it's made, how could they not? Uh, I think this provides, this hopefully, uh, you know, clears the way for them not to have to like constantly rewrite scripts. I think a second film hopefully could have a more clear narrative and better characters rather than having to be a case of them going with whatever they have to finally get a fucking film made. Mm, that'd be a novel concept. Let's have a script and characters. Just to wrap this up, Jurassic World chat up now, uh, I'm reminded uh, of a quote by uh, um, Kim Newman, um, in which I'm going to paraphrase it because I haven't got the quote to hand. But he says something like, uh, 95% of all films uh, would be better if they had dinosaurs in them, but 95% of films with dinosaurs in are terrible, which <laughs> is, you know, Jurassic World doesn't really go far to disprove that. Um, let's move on to uh, Shot Reverse, Shot Recommends. What are you going to recommend for us this week, Ed? Uh, I'm going to recommend that people revisit the second Jurassic Park film, Jurassic, uh, The Lost World, colon, Jurassic Park, with mm. its weird backwards naming convention that I don't quite understand. Uh, I This was a film that I saw in the cinema when it came out, and I have to say it was the most disappointed I've ever been in a film. Like I say, I, I really liked the first Jurassic Park, and then I saw the second one, and I was just so bummed out that it wasn't as good. And I didn't watch it again for 18 years. And I recently got a box set of Spielberg films on Blu-ray because it had films I actually wanted, and uh, Lost World was included, so I decided to rewatch it. And uh, I I liked it a lot more, and I think it's a bit better than its reputation would suggest. It's not perfect. It has really dumb things in it, such as the fact that uh, Jeff Goldblum's daughter, Jim Carter's a raptor to death, mm-hmm. um, and the entire finale in San Diego is incredibly stupid. But it has this fun B-movie monster feel to it, which occasionally rubs up against the kind of awe from the first film that Spielberg tries to recreate. But there are some amazing sequences in it, such as the sequence in which uh, the military uh, men are stalked through long grass by raptors and you just see their tails going through and the kind of the shapes of them moving through the long grass, which uh, for me is one of Spielberg's greatest images as a kind of an action filmmaker. That's one that has uh, stuck with me for the entire 18 years since I saw the film. Uh, and I think that if you watch the first 90 minutes or so and just cut it off at the point when they all escape from the island, uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty fun, uh, pretty fun action film. Hmm. Cool. Um, I'm going to recommend something completely different, um, of a completely different tack that will probably bum everyone out, but I would probably, I'd like to talk about it anyway. Um, uh, as you all know, if you listen to the show, 
uh, especially if you listen to the episode in which we talked about Parks and Recreation. We talked about Harris Wills, who uh, was a huge contributor to that show, a massive part of what made that successful, but um, sadly died just before the show's conclusion. And my recommendation this week is that you read uh, the piece that his sister wrote, uh, which is on the website media, the web platform Medium, um, and it's called The New Normal um, Pieces of Grief. And it is an absolute heartbreaker of a uh, a piece of writing, which is basically her talking about how she found out about her brother dying and how she uh, had to try and process it and how she kind of um, has tried to kind of make sense of it and come to deal with it um, in the what has only been, what, like four months since it happened, five months since it happened. Um, and I read it at work the other day on my phone on my lunch break and just kind of sat there quietly crying uh, in the corner. Um, and I recommend you all do the same because it is very sad and it is very heartbreaking, but it is an absolutely beautiful piece of writing. And I thought that given how much we like Harris Whittles as a pair, um, it would be quite a fitting thing to do. Yep, and uh, I'll provide a link to that in the uh, show notes for this episode so people will be able to click on it and uh, cry. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, that's that's uh, it for us this week. Um, please do uh, find us on uh, the usual channels, um, on the Twitter, on uh, Facebook, um, and subscribe to the podcast uh, via iTunes or Stitcher, and please leave us a review uh, if you're um, feeling fresh. You can also, if you have Android, you can now listen to us on Player FM, a uh, app that we were added to after my friend uh, John Banks recommended us. So uh, thanks for that, John. Uh, he he recommended it to us, and so you can download it there. And also, uh, if you want, please submit questions for us for our hundredth episode. We're doing an Ask Us Anything uh, thing, so send us any questions you'd like through Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Yeah, that's the next episode. This is uh, episode ninety nine, and mm. as a special treat. Um, me and Ed have deemed it important enough to record episode 100 in person. Ed is flying over especially for the uh, wedding of his friends, actually, and uh, <laughs> we're going to record this on the side. Um, um, so, yeah, uh, that's next week. Uh, and until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.